My name is Tommaso, your first year student host for the My First Year Story podcast. Here, I'll be sitting down with people who have the answers to your college questions and who can help me survive my first year as a University of Connecticut student by telling their own first year stories during our conversation. We have had people on this podcast achieve all levels of success, from local to international, and Professor Jamelia Morgan is no exception. She graduated from Stanford in the Yale Law School and has worked in multiple positions for the ACLU, the NAACP, and the Abolitionist Law Center. Professor Morgan is an example of success and advocacy all around. Professor Morgan, thank you so much for being here with me today. Would you please introduce yourself to our listeners, your name, pronoun, hometown, and your favorite movie of all time? It's so nice to be here, Tommaso. I'm so um, honored to be a part of this wonderful uh, podcast. So my name is Jamelia Morgan. My preferred pronouns are she, her. I am Associate Professor of Law at the University of Connecticut School of Law, and I am from Roland Heights, Southern California, um, which is in L.A. County, a small town. I um, struggled with this question, but I think my one of my all-time favorite movies is probably Matilda, uh, which is a kid movie in a way. Um, I saw it for the first time when I was probably like six or seven, um, but it's this wonderful story about this imaginative child that loves to read and uses books as a way to escape pretty tough conditions. Um, that's probably top on the list. Yeah, that is such a classic. I that's a great it's a great movie. <laughs> um, so as we dive into a conversation today, our first kind of series of questions pertain to your involvement in UConn's new one credit anti-black racism course that's mm-hmm. available to both students and faculty and staff. So for those who may not know, could you explain what the course is about and why it's so important? Yes. Yeah, so the course was really an initiative pushed um, by Black students at UConn. And I think that what happened over the summer, the uprisings related to George Floyd really created a movement centered on addressing issues of structural racism and particularly anti-Blackness on um, college campuses across the country, UConn being just one of them. I was really inspired by the student requests. And I felt as a faculty member, I wanted to be a part of a group of faculty on campus that were, you know, going to use our training and knowledge as it relates to anti-Blackness and, you know, provide for the students sort of an outlet for learning more and really equip them with the tools to address anti-Blackness on campus and beyond. So it was really an honor to be a part of that and uh, to connect with the incredible faculty across the campuses that also stepped up to produce content to help teach some of these key ideas. Yeah, that is great. And so um, how did you get involved in formulating and teaching this course? I know you mentioned that it was the students who kind of brought this up and were like, yes, we want to learn. And What about this excites you the most? Yeah, I think, you know, I got involved. I was contacted by the coordinators, incredible professors that put this together. Um, I think, you know, for me, how could I say no? Of course, this is why I became an educator. I wanted to both teach and write about issues relating to race and racism. And I think the purpose is to help educate so that we can address these longstanding issues Um, What excites me most 
is the dedication. I think the participation uh, is an indication of this, but just the dedication to addressing these issues, the persistence that students have shown in calling out, um, you know, racial bias and examples of racism and anti-Blackness on campus and doing so fearlessly and doing so in, in ways that are, you know, supportive of, you know, wanting to educate, wanting to help their peers learn, just incredibly productive. And I think, you know, that's a lot of labor to take on as a student. And I, I think that they are in an incredible tradition of student activists who have, you know, taken what they've learned in the classroom and taken what they've learned in life to really push back and, you know, make our campuses more inclusive and address longstanding issues uh, relating to race and racism. So that excites me. That's a, that's an important tradition. And, um, you know, one that I was a part of too, when I was um, an undergraduate student. Yeah. And we see that time and time again with student activism. And I especially feel like this generation is just fed up with the anti-Blackness and just like this whole perception that this nation currently has. So what is one current issue you see? I mean, there's many issues, but one, what is one you see on the Yukon community related to intersectionality that you would like to see changed in the future? Yeah, you know, I have observed from afar many of the issues relating to sort of, you know, I guess what could be called hate speech on campus. I've watched the issues relating to policing And I think, you know, every community is different and every problem is unique to that community, but there are some overarching themes across campuses. You know, Black students are, can be more vulnerable uh, to surveillance, to harassment, to policing. And, you know, these are issues obviously that we see that exist in the broader community. You know, when I was in college, there were issues of racial profiling as well. And they felt like such disruptions to what was a really pleasant, warm, um, just thoroughly delightful experience. But they were reminders that we were, you know, Black people in America that constantly had to deal with racism, even in the idyllic setting of a college campus, even in the allegedly protective bubble of going to college. And so, um, you know, that I think is, you know, those are again from a observer from afar. I, I live in Hartford and our campus is not connected to the, the main campus, but mm-hmm. reading about these accounts was really, you know, distressing. I think that, um, you know, the president has done an excellent job in responding and convening and supporting, um, efforts to educate, um, efforts to address some of these on-campus issues. And I think those should continue. I think all students should be able to move about safely on campus without having to experience, you know, bias, without having to experience insecurity. Um, Yeah. And just having to deal with the fact of that on top of the stress of just learning itself. Exactly. It's a challenge. Um, mm-hmm. As you, as you know, you're experiencing <laughs> in incredibly challenging conditions. 
Yeah. And so you have attended and worked at many prestigious universities and impactful organizations, including the ACLU National Prison Project and the ACLU of Mississippi. I am considered very lucky to have you a part of this of mm-hmm. UConn Law faculty and also here with us today. Um, what attracted you to teach at UConn? Yeah, I um, was really the beneficiary in many ways of student activism at the law school. So I was hired officially to begin in 2018, but my process started in 2017. And those dates are significant because the posting to teach critical race theory was in direct result to students advocating for a critical race theory course, oh, around fall 2016 and into 2017. Why? Because in response to the election of Donald Trump, they thought there was a need for critical race theory on campus. And so again, students at the law school led by the Black Law Students Association primarily, but others also were a part of identifying, you know, um, a problem and an omission in the curriculum. Again, as the students did this past summer in bringing the anti a blackness uh, course uh, to campus. So I applied because I, at the time, was in practice and I still do engage in practice, legal practice, but I've always wanted to be an educator. I've always believed that the way to respond to structural racism and start to address it in the long term, because it's going to be a continuous struggle to undo the legacies of structural racism and settler colonialism. And I think education is a pathway to that. I think if people really, students, you know, had the opportunity to understand the histories of race and the legacies of chattel slavery and how the law constructs race and racism, among other incredible topics that you see in the course modules for the anti-Blackness course, um, that they would be equipped with the tools to respond through policy, through legislative action, through organizing, through social work, through you know, becoming educators themselves and researchers and, and those that are going out and working um, in large corporations, wherever your site is, there's something that you can do. Um, and so I came back to teaching and in response, um, you know, applied to the job and, you know, got the opportunity to teach critical race theory and courses relating to disability law and policy. I taught a course called Disability Justice that looked at disability law in the context of our carceral state And also I've taught um, criminal law. And so those intersections have allowed me to critique mass incarceration and mass criminalization and do so using a racial uh, justice lens. So that's how I get to to UConn Law. And I also, I neglected to mention there were three professors that coordinated the anti-Black racism course. And um, I wanted to just name them because I thought they did a fantastic job of convening them. So Drs. Davis, Embrick, and Castillo Montoya just were fantastic in bringing us together. So I want to acknowledge their work in addition to the incredible professors that, like myself, helped put this together. Of course. Um, and I, like I mentioned before we started, I have friends who are currently in the course who are reaping the benefits of their hard work, which is, mm-hmm. I think, one of, especially as an educator, exciting to see that yeah. it's paying off. Um, so as you were a first year student at Yale and or Stanford, um, mm-hmm. you mentioned you were definitely a part of student activism. Is there anything that happened to you that sort of affected how you teach at UConn today that happened in your youth? Yes, I think that's a wonderful question. I guess I can, it's been 
oh, a number of years. So I walked on to Stanford's uh, campus as an undergrad in 20, and sorry, in 2002. Can you believe it? So uh, that's going to be <laughs> harder to think back with specific details. I walked on to Yale Law School's campus um, as a 1L in 2010. But um, that's really hard to say. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so honestly, uh, Tommaso, I think that, um, you know, the activism that you engage in on campus, even though it's years ago now, you never forget. No. Um, when I was there, I was a part of the student uh, chapter of the local NAACP. And we were actively at the time involved in you know, resisting the death penalty. And so we did a number of direct actions where we staged die-ins to contest the state of California's uh, decision to, uh, to execute at the time a man named Atuki Williams, who had become um, a reformer in California prisons, who had mentored youth, but who had, you know, played a role in the founding of the organization, the gang organization uh, known as the Crips. And so for a number of crimes, he was sentenced to death in California. And that just became a rallying cry in addition to other cases. We had decided as a chapter that the death penalty and its administration in the United States of America was a racist uh, system and disproportionately impacted Black uh, defendants. Indeed, there's studies, there's the famous Baldus study that says that, in, in, in fact, the race of the victim is a determining factor in whether one will be sentenced to death. And in, if you, um, you take the life of a white victim, you are four times more likely to be sentenced to death than if you take the life of a Black victim. Now, this is to, you know, to many ears. I mean, these are serious crimes, right? Um, yeah. But we believed that the state did not have the moral, legal, um, and uh, authority to execute, we were against the death penalty. So it's a decidedly political issue that I think has changed since you know 2002. So I remember getting involved in that, um, and that involvement, you know, extended beyond Stanford's campus. It involved you know working in the community and supporting their local efforts, particularly the NAACP's efforts there as well. The other thing that I think is really interesting too is uh, we were working on addressing what became the heart of the um, recession in, 20, in 2008, we had identified a number of people that had received what then became termed, um, or later became termed, subprime mortgages. And they were Black people. And they were struggling to pay mortgages. And we wrote a report about it. And I wish I could still find the report because it's eerie to look back and see just how many of the precursors to the crisis could have probably been avoided if legislators and policymakers and you know leaders of these banks and yeah. um, mortgage brokers paid attention to what was happening in black communities. And so that was sort of, you know, for me at, at, at an undergrad, those were the issues that sort of dragged me. I did a lot of work around AIDS treatment and ensuring that those living with HIV AIDS had access to treatment as well. I, I found myself in a number of issues, Tomaso. I yeah. just I just dived in and I think like so many of you first years as well, there's so many issues that probably motivate you and having right. the time and space and energy to do them is a real privilege. 
you know, just quickly in law school, it's, and this is a kind of an interesting segue, I guess, um, into the activism from this past summer. But in, in law school, it was working against police misconduct and brutality. And, um, and our issue was Trayvon Martin. That happened, that killing happened in my second year. And we wanted the, you know, the law school to support us in our activism and on our calls for at the time, you know, the indictment of George Zimmerman. Yeah. We, we protested after the acquittal. We just wanted to raise awareness of the issue of police violence in Black communities. And so we did that in a number of ways through convenings and workshops and direct actions. And we wanted the school to teach us how to address or to provide educators that could teach us how to address these structural harms and these harms that disproportionately impact Black communities. We wanted to figure out how the law could respond to that. And so we asked for classes in the same, kind of in the same tradition as you saw the students from this past summer. Yeah, and I, and you, like you said, you were heavily involved there. And I think it's once you, like, once you open Pandora's box, it's, you can't unsee and mm-hmm. ignore it. And I think a college does that to a lot of people because, like, personally myself, I grew up predominantly white town. And just, like, mm-hmm. even going to UConn, which is still predominantly white, and seeing all these effects and hearing people's stories has just been, like, oh, yeah, there's, you need to, we need to work and we need mm-hmm. to get, get to work mm-hmm. sooner rather than later. Yeah, it's one of my favorite quotes. It's Arundhati Roy. And she says, once you see it, you cannot unsee it. And there, that it can change and it can vary based on where you are in the world. But it's this beautiful quote where she centers that. And for some of us, that's been very true. Yeah, and you, you have a ton of wisdom. And so what are some ideas and lessons that you try to instill in your students that, make, that seem to make impacts on their careers? Yes, I think, you know, one, I will say I learned from my students too. And so, so many of, you know, the ideas, the wisdom that I've gleaned has come from my students and um, what they taught me. I would hope and I aspire (laughs) to be an educator that inspires my students to tackle the tough issues, to get in communities that are in need and to help support them. I, you know, know there's so many different ways of doing that, but I'd like my students to work for the cause of justice, to work to make the world a better place, not to be using like a common refrain that might be worn out, but there's so many things, whether we can think about those that are supporting and providing mutual aid in the middle of a pandemic to those who can't leave their homes, to, you know, bringing groceries, bringing medicines. Um, whether it's those students that have, you know, went to the polls to support the number of community members that may have needed access to exercise their right to vote. You know, my law students are engaged in a number of legal aid organizations uh, doing the work of providing access to, to justice, providing access to lawyers on issues, you know, relating to housing discrimination, again, voter rights, disability rights. There's just so much to be done, I think, in a world where we're seeing the extent of, of human suffering. And so now that being said, I, I hope I also inspire students to be critical thinkers, to ask the questions of their institutions, of their families, of their communities that will point us towards the longstanding social problems with the purpose of finding 
the solution to those problems. I think right. the key to really tackling issues of structural racism, of gender subordination, transphobia, homophobia, legacies of settler colonialism are rooted in asking the questions, you know, asking, you know, what government can do to respond to the climate catastrophe that's looming on the horizon, what the government can do to recognize the sovereignty of indigenous rights and indigenous communities across the country, what the government can do to respond to the pandemic that's disproportionately impacting Black communities and Latinx communities. And I'll name Detroit and Los Angeles in particular, the disproportionately high rates of Black people that have died in Detroit and the disproportionately high rates of Latinx communities uh, and individuals that have been targeted, ha- that, have, yeah. you know, died disproportionately by COVID is just devastating. We need to, you know, we need to start Address asking it. the right questions. Exactly. Yeah. You're absolutely right. And the pandemic, as much as, as much as it's hurt and kind of ravaged these communities, I think it's, like you said, it's shown a lot of com- human compassion and people going out and saying, yeah, let me help, let me help my brother and let me help my sister. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think mm-hmm. that's what we need more of. And like mm-hmm. you said, asking questions is just the start of it. Yes, yes. Um, so going back to your career, you worked your first year of, out of college uh, in the New York County District Attorney's Office. Mm-hmm. Um, what were your initial goals in your in your first year, or and what were your worries and anxieties, and yeah. how did you overcome those? And yeah, now you're here. That first year was tough. I mean, it's interesting now because um, y- my views have evolved. I that's a prosecutor office, and now I don't believe like my energies are best spent in prosecution. But there's mm-hmm. a number of ways in which students can be involved in rethinking prosecution. But that. You know, that was a wonderful opportunity. I, you know, went to school in California. I took the leap of moving all the way across the country to New York City. I wanted, I wanted a new experience. I, you know, like you grew up in like a small town. We were very diverse though, but we were small. Yeah. <laughs> and I had grown up in California and that was my, that was my home. And I wanted to push myself. I wanted to you know, live the city life, if you will. And so on a whim, you know, was out in New York looking around, I think it was Memorial Day. And I visited a friend at the Manhattan District Attorney's Office, I saw a job posting and I applied. And I got the position as a paralegal, my first job as a paralegal in the major economic crimes bureau. So we were involved in prosecuting banks, actually, that violated financial regulations. And it was my first experience in law. It was, you know, transformative. I got to work with excellent lawyers. I got to see the system from the inside. I was working with a team of investigators, looking through records and learning how to do investigative work. And it really just inspired me. It, it inspired me, you know, to, to not only go to law school, among another a number of reasons, but it gave me a glimpse of what being a lawyer was like. And so I think in so many ways, that first job, whatever that role is, that's your chance to explore and observe, to see if this is the kind of life you want, to see, you know, the highs and the lows of the job from an insider perspective Mm -hmm. and to have fun. I mean, so many of, you know, that, that first class of paralegals, like we all, you know, a number of us went to law school a number of us still keep in touch. Um, many years later, we just had such fun together. We were working together long hours, but we were also friends. We also, you know, had the opportunity as 
first years out of school yeah. to work together. It was a really good time. Yeah, you guys were all dipping your toes into yeah, that world exactly. together, so, which is kind of exciting. Um, and so just keeping moving mm-hmm. forward, this year has been a renewal for the Black Lives Matter movement and has inspired many college students to advocate and engage in the racial crisis dialogue, including with the U.S. prison system. Being sort of a leader in that field, what advice would you give students looking to do what you do or something similar in the future? And where or how would you recommend they start engaging in racial, racial justice work? Yeah, that's a great question. I'm I would be honored to be considered a leader. I just <laughs> I just do the work cuz I think um this is sort of my 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 life's work. I want to yeah. um, work towards ending mass incarceration, to removing the carceral state as a way of responding to acts of harm and violence, to working towards you know, really supporting people so that they don't commit um, acts of harm or that we we don't punish through a punitive state we find other ways of addressing harm and so I, you know I find and um, in going into this work definitely found this to be true that there's so many organizations that are really uh, looking for support and and sometimes what it means is volunteering and sometimes it means you know taking the job that might not be in your preferred city or might not be at the level of pay you need it to be right now to do really important work. And so there are so many organizations, there's the NAACP Legal Defense Fund or NAACP, there's Civil Rights Corps, there's Dream Defenders. Yeah, there's so many ways there's to get involved. There's so many ways to get involved. I think the best thing to do is just sort of identifying what your area is going to be. And, and again, it doesn't have to be that, let's say you decide I want to work on climate change and I right. want to address this impending crisis. Uh, There's a number of organizations, but maybe the first step is learning about the issue, learning about who's in the space doing the work, because whatever issue you're going to turn to, there's an incredible history of people doing work in that area. Problems that we face in society are long-standing and deeply rooted, but there is a history of communities working to solve these problems. And Mm -hmm. so finding out who those communities are you never have to start from scratch on any issue. Uh, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but there are a number of issues where you can see legacies of uh, organizing around them. So find out who's doing the work. Get kind of situated in the literature, whether it's news articles, research about the issue. Really smart, engaged people have written about the issue. What have they said? What can you contribute? I think the other thing tangibly is figuring out, okay, so when you get a lay of the land, and you know, this isn't like a dissertation necessarily at this stage, right? Just trying to familiar yourself with who's out there. Then you can better figure out how are you going to allocate your time and resources? Right. Is it going to be volunteer support? Is it going to be financial support? Are you going to try to find other ways of engaging? And so for instance, in, in prisoner rights, you know, I just, I recently connected with an, you know, a group that was looking for uh, legal research support. And so I offered my services that just came through, honestly, Twitter and really following this group and seeing the kind of work that they were doing. They have an incredible pen pal program uh, that uh, supports incarcerated people across the country. The organization is Abolition Apostles. It's um, sort of interfaith, but has a faith frame, but their real focus is on um, you know, providing pen pal support and material aid mm-hmm. to uh, formerly incarcerated individuals when they leave um, facilities and they needed help. And so, you know, we're connecting, you know, in a week or so to talk about what it looks like to provide them with support, financially, research support, otherwise. But that's kind of an example, like plugging in 
yeah um and and seeing who's out there and what their issues are um is a good way of identifying how to get involved that's a really great piece of advice because i know just learning about these things and feeling like ah like in this yeah. anxiety and saying oh we're like running out of time especially yeah. with climate and stuff like yeah. that and that just seeing that history of activism there and being like okay i can just pick up where you left off yeah it's definitely a really good thing to understand and i think a lot of people miss that yeah moving on to our final couple of questions mm-hmm. i have the signature signature question that we ask all our <laughs> guests um so we are all first at something whether you're a first person in your family to go to college or something else what do you feel like you've been the first at and how do you think that's impacted your story yeah, that's amazing. I really appreciate the opportunity to think that through. I So I consider myself first gen. It's funny because when I started college, I was the first, I would have been the first to graduate with a BA in my family. But the funny thing was, is like my, my second year, my mom also started a college program hey. <laughs> and she beat me. She got her degree in three years and I did four. <laughs> so uh, that's for you, mom. Uh, who got her BA. So my mom technically is the first to get, and actually she ended up getting a BS. So, but it was funny because I always said, well, I was the first to start. Can I still be considered? Yeah. Anyway, um, first lawyer as well. So I think being the first for me is, re- it's really an honor. I think that in so many ways, though, I am the first because I come from a generation of just a legacy of of really black women, we're, we're kind of a matriarch family that were bold and um, spoke out against injustices and did so at great personal cost to them. And, um, you know, in the case of my grandmother, she, you know, was so afraid of airplanes, but, you know, left Jamaica to come to the U.S. at a time where she really believed that her uh, grandkids would have better educational opportunities yeah. than she had. And I always thought that was so funny. And I always asked my my parents, uh, my, my, my mom, it's my grandmother's, um, my mother's mom. And I asked my aunts and my uncles, I was like, I, I always was struck by the fact that she said it was her grandkids, not her kids, her grandkids <laughs> were going to have the opportunity, right? So she had, yes. like the, she had the presence of mind to know that it was going to take time for us to get access to these incredible opportunities. So yeah. I always think of that when I think about the first, like our firsts, whatever they are, are kind of enabled by the people that came before us. And so if we celebrate them, uh, and I, as I think many of us do, mm-hmm. it's it's really a recognition of those that set up the path for us to be here. Yeah, and um, those sacrifices that they made. And those sacrifices. So I love my first because it reminds me of thinking about my family and how I how I got here. Um, and uh, being the first lawyer too. I mean, you know, we, we I get a lot of legal questions across the family, <laughs> yeah. but I know I won't be the last. That's the, the good thing. Right, because now you've created this. Yeah. You do, which is yeah. exciting. Yeah. So you've given a lot of great advice this episode. Um, is there any other advice you'd give our college student listeners? Yeah, you know, I want to just center, I think these questions are wonderful. I would center self-care, but community care also. Yeah. I think you all are dealing with so much right now. Um, it doesn't need to be stated. This is a lot. And I think in this difficult time, all of us need to take care of ourselves, but also need to take care of each other. And so like to return to like that mutual aid frame, to return to this notion that, you know, there are a number of ways to get help if you need it through friends and family and asking for it. It's okay to ask for help because... Mm-hmm. You know, our society is so rooted in individualism and um, acknowledging weakness can seem as like a personal deficiency. But 
you know, I always tell students like getting support from friends and family is important and also getting support from professionals. So I do tell my students, I go to therapy, I talk about things that are troubling me. And I, you know, didn't grow up necessarily in a culture that valued that, but Mm -hmm. um, have educated myself. And we all have, I think, um, for those of us that are learning to accept and understand the role of mental health in our day to day. So um, this work is hard. And I think, as you noted, Tommaso, it's a, a long haul. And if you look at people that have been doing social justice, racial justice work for decades, you you really, it's hard to, to not to notice, but the ones that have been doing it for a long time have wonderful practices around what they eat and how much they exercise and whether it's yoga or going to the, you know, um, do runs, go to the gym, being vegan, you know, meditative practices. I think there's a connection there. You know, I, I, I haven't seen any studies, but I, yeah, but there has to be, there has to be. So finding even on the busiest day, you know, time for yourself to think, to recenter, to think about what you're putting in your body, to think about, you know, who you need to connect with. I think that's so important. And I don't think people expect, you know, law professors to say that. No, but but it's I think true. it's so important. We need you here. We need you well. We need you happy to do this work because yeah. this work, racial justice, fighting anti-Blackness, fighting the legacies of structural oppression, it requires a lot of love. It requires a lot of persistence. And it requires perseverance. And you can't persevere if you have no energy, if you're not. Yeah. So thinking about that, too. That, yeah. And I, that's, what, I think, kind of one of the things I sort of learned my first semester is not getting caught up in kind of everybody else's thinking and just, yeah. like you said, setting aside those hours in the day where you're like, this is, this is how I need to kind of refresh and be my best self for everybody else. Um, so now's the time of the conversation where we kind of flip it around and you get to ask me a, a question. <laughs> That's great. So, so Tommaso, what are, what's on your mind these days in terms of thinking about your role in the world and what you want to do? I know it's early. It's your, you know, first year. But what, what's on your mind in that sense? Well, so I'm a studio art major, and um, I always I always felt like, especially when the issues are just presented and shown up on my on my feed or just in my life, that am I doing something important enough to um, help these things? And my friend kind of gave me a good piece of advice. It's like activism needs every part of society and every person yes. to help get that goal. And I think that's one thing that I try and keep in my mind and saying like, yes, you are on the right path. Like this is something that you will be able to help people for. And um, that's kind of how I view my role. And especially as a white person and using my privilege as an ally and someone who can speak up for those who are having, people are having trouble hearing um, Mm -hmm. is something that has definitely been heavily on my mind. So I think that's kind Mm -hmm. of where personally I'm, I'm at. um, Yeah. Yeah. Art is such a big part of activism. I'll put in one plug. I don't know if you've ever heard of the Interference Archives. They're an incredible group in Brooklyn and they collect all of the art, whether it's posters or buttons or magazines that have influenced uh, social movements across time. So labor movements, um, you know, the civil rights movements, women's liberation. And it's just a museum of art that I will definitely check that out. It's amazing. And now it's online. Um, But one of the things I think is absolutely, I'd also lift um, this organization I'm on the board for, Mary's Daughter. They they engage in what's called artivism and they use art to tell their stories. They're all formerly incarcerated 
uh, women and they use art to tell their stories through one woman play, one act plays, um, other public performances. And, and so I totally would echo that. Like art is so important to so many of these movements for yeah. social change. Yeah, and I've been learning a lot. Like I just recently finished up a project for one of my criticism classes about a curator, Thelma Golden, who mm-hmm. works at the Studio Museum in Harlem and how she's given the space and the exhibits she's curated have created these conversations. So it's definitely been, I've been able to see like, yes, there are things that I can do too in my in my lane to help this movement. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I, I thank you so much for this conversation. Okay. I know a lot, all of us here at the team were super excited to hear from you. And I think that it was a really great success. So um, thank I thank you. you for having us today and uh, enjoy the uh, rest of this beautiful <laughs> sunny day. And to our listeners, thank you for listening. And uh, thank you, Tomasa. It's my pleasure. Awesome. The My First Year Story podcast is a production of the University of Connecticut's undergraduate student body in collaboration with the Office of First Year Programs, Learning Communities, the Academic Achievement Center, and the Learning Community Innovation Zone. Our co-producers are Casey Jaycox and Hannah Peterson. Our staff advisors are Cody Ryan and Helena DeBald. For more information on our podcast, to meet our entire staff, and to listen to more episodes, visit fyp.uconn.edu backslash mfys. And follow us on Instagram and Twitter at UConnFYP.